Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today, I'm here with Jeremiah Freitz. Thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. This is my first episode back of the podcast in about a year. I thought that I might hang it up or may not do it anymore. When I decided to come back, I was like, I really want to talk to people that have made whether they know it or not, a profound impact on my life. And I've always loved your music. And I've got to see you guys live at when you guys played the garden for the first time. I'm humbled that you're that you're here. I couldn't think of a better person to get things kicked off again. So thank you for being here. Oh, man, that's a huge honor. Thank you. I will be taken to task by the entire town of Ramsey, New Jersey. If I don't say that I'm calling in from Mawa today, right next to I'm technically in Ramsey, <laughs> but I know that you guys were born and raised around here and there's such Oh yeah. Valley Hospital. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. My wife is a teacher at Tisdale. Now the question that we've all been wondering, who went where? I was a dater into Hubbard. I, I forget what Tisdale covered, but I was, uh, started at Redeemer Nursery School with my mom. She was my preschool teacher. That was pretty cool. And then, wow. uh, went to dater. <laughs> And then I think in fourth grade, went over to Hubbard and then yeah. Smith and then Ramsey High. And then, uh, yeah. Now, when you went to Ramsey High School, were you in the marching band or? No, actually, I tried to get into the, there was the jazz band, which actually had like instruments I was more interested in, in terms of like, it was guitar, bass, and predominantly drums. There was actually like a drum set drummer in the jazz band. But I think the teacher at the time, I won't say his name. I was not a big fan of him. I had him as a music teacher in one of my classes, and he uh, was sort of one of those teachers that um, I feel like maybe he had a bad or hard teacher when he was growing up yeah. um, on him. So I, I, he wasn't, in my opinion, great at inspiring students to love music. But I think there was like a prerequisite that to be in the jazz band, you need to be in the marching band. I couldn't read music, nor did I want to read music, so I didn't join the jazz, uh, the marching band, so I never got into the jazz band, and uh, I sort of did my own thing when it came to music. I mean, I think I was the summer of eighth grade going into freshman year of high school, so I think that's like about 14, 13, something like that, and uh, I finally got a drum set. I begged my parents for a drum set. In my memory, many years, maybe it was just one year, but I, I in my memory, it was like I always wanted a drum set. We never had the money for it, and then... Uh, my first drum set I made out of like Tupperware and Folgers coffee cans. I turned them upside down and had chopsticks and like made a drum set out of that. And then eventually that, that summer, that fateful summer, I got a drum set. I think it was called Olympic Premier. I don't know why I remember that, but I'm pretty sure the, the name of the brand was Olympic Premier. I think it was the cheapest drum set that they sold at the Guitar Center on Route 17, probably in Paramus, New Jersey. Yes. And uh, came back and set it up and I had no idea what I was doing. And I have a photo actually of my dad, me and my dad, like setting it up in my li our living room in Ramsey where I grew up. And it's kind of an awesome photo. Cause I had no idea like what the drum lugs were and how to tighten a drum and tune a drum and set up a drum. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I really still don't, but uh, <laughs> I think that, yeah, it was like more self-taught. I mean, back to the music question. I think I, self-taught though is a, is a funny way of like, I think trying to make yourself sound cool in that like to, you're not really self-taught. I mean, at least for me, like I, I guess I'd consider myself self-taught, but it's like, I did take some lessons and every waking conversation with my friends was about music. I mean, that's all we talked about. It was like, if you were friends with us, you probably got so bored very quickly because that's all <laughs> we talked about was music, 
yeah. and time signatures and trying to learn this drum beat and going to see shows and blah, blah, blah. So the whole concept of self-taught, I feel like gives this illusion of like, is this person tinkering away by themselves and learning right. all this stuff? And there is like validity to that. And that does happen. There is a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes, but I, it was weird. I mean, in that, the, the town where I grew up in, Ramsey, New Jersey, you know, it's a small town. And there was a lot of, lot of strong, raw musical creativity and talent in um, like maybe a year or two below me and like three or four years, even maybe even up to 10 years above me, there were these local bands that, and uh, local kids that were a little bit older than me that I really looked up to. I was like, wow, that guy's so good at bass. So that guy's so good at drums. Holy cow. So it was a very um, inspiring place. And, you know, you might not consider like the small suburbs of New Jersey as this like creative hotbed for that, but um, it really was there. And I think that I, I really was lucky to be part of that generation because I have no idea what what's going on in Ramsey now in the suburbs, musically speaking. But I really think there was something during that age that it just was very like fertile and very uh, exciting to be around. How did you guys go from sort of these local shows? I know you had a couple of different names before then and about the inception of the band. I know that it had kind of a, came from sort of a dark place and helped you guys heal. So maybe talk about that experience. Wes, the singer, came back from finishing his university and reached out to a mutual friend of ours, this guy, Justin Papp, to start a band. Me and Justin at the time were actually making rap and hip hop beats believe it or not we were trying to make like <laughs> instrumental sort of beats electronic stuff and justin said yeah I'll, let's do the band but not without jer and wes knew me a little bit and i knew wes a little bit because wes was friends with my older brother josh i was friends with wes's younger brother sam we kind of grew up together years before wes came back from university my older brother he died of a, a, a drug overdose and that was you know the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I, I pray that remains to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I mean, that didn't start the band in any stretch of the imagination. I think that tragic event in my life gave me, I'd always like to think that like happiness and joy gives you like a finite amount of um, inspiration and creativity. Like it burns fast. Like joy is like joy. And then like five minutes later, you could get <laughs> mad about something else. Yeah. Whereas unfortunately grief and like sadness and depression can give you fuel for, for years, you know, sometimes never goes away for some people, unfortunately. And that grief was really uh, intense and burned really strong for me for years and years. And I think that that helped me in some roundabout way, or maybe some, maybe it's a natural way to kind of be able to feel those emotions of sadness and loss and grief so much. And so, so intense that that really like, I think put that into some of our music. Now, believe it or not, at the time when we were making that music, I mean, we started out as a cover band. Wes had some original songs. Wes is a few years older than me, so he is—he had already started writing his own songs and had his like his own thing kind of going on. But then when we started out, it was like some of his songs and then some covers, maybe Coldplay or Tom Petty or you know Bob Dylan or whatever we were kind of covering at the time, and then. Um, we started making music. So it was the three of us at the time, me, Justin, and Wes. And yeah, you know, we had a band name called Six Cheek. And then eventually the band name Justin left at some point. And then, uh, then it was just called Wesley Jeremiah, our first two names. There was a bunch of other names we were going to go by. And then we played a show in Jersey City where the 
host of the night called us the Lumineers and the Lumineers were actually playing next week. Um, they were called Lumineers. We added the to it, the Lumineers and uh, For our, lawyer, our lawyers assured us we're okay. But I mean, this was years <laughs> ago and um, I think if you go to their MySpace, I think it still exists. I think it's like myspace.com slash Lumineers. They were a band. Um, but we thought the band name was cool and we took it and it was a, it's a really cool name, I think still, because it's yeah. very odd and specific. But believe it or not, you know, we wrote probably 75 songs maybe before album one. So album one, the self-titled release that we did, which was just called The Lumineers, track one on that is called Flowers in Your Hair. Before that, you know, Wes and I probably had written 50 to 75 songs that nobody will ever hear. But it was totally different genre, totally different style, very sort of like more like angsty alt rock. We were, we were sort of product of the 90s. So I think that makes sense that it was like that. But the, yeah, the sound we kind of landed on with album one was sort of a sound that we felt, okay, this will be like something we'll love for the rest of our lives and something that we'll really dig continuously. Ho Hey and, and Stubborn Love and, and that comes out. It's all over the radio. I know that you had had some success at that time, but when, when you have that first, those first big singles that break, what does that, what does that feel like? And is there a moment where it's like elation or is it like, holy shit, how are we going to do this again? It was pretty crazy when that song came out. I remember it first came out four months before it actually came out. So the album came out in April, I don't know if it was 2012, I think. So April, 2012. So Ho was synced, meaning it was like synchronized. It's sync is a fancy business term for it was in a, you know, a movie or a TV show commercial. Ho was synced to a TV show. I think it was called Nashville. I can't remember, but I think it was called a show called Nashville on the CW 11. And it was at the end of the show and they almost played like the whole song of Ho But the, at the time, I don't think Shazam was what it is today. This is 10 years ago. So Shazam existed, but I don't think it was an iPhone app yet. Right. And I don't think it was as easy to understand. Back then you had to like hear the lyrics and you could Google stuff. Google existed 10 years ago, of course. So you could Google the lyrics. So I remember like the song came out and it was a big feature on the show, but the album hadn't come out and we had no we had no like footprint on the internet at that point. Like the luminaries didn't really exist the way we do now. So people were like asking Yahoo questions, like just heard this song on the show. I think it was called Nashville. Uh, you know, I belong with you, you belong with me. And I was like answering to people like, that's our song. I'm in a band <laughs> called Lumineers. And like, but nobody could like get the song. I don't think there was even a YouTube link to it. So in that four months, I was like, oh man, I, I was really bummed out that like the song had a big feature on this TV show. That was a really big thing for us. But then like the album wasn't out. So when it came out in April, um, yeah, we played every late night TV show. That song we started with Craig Ferguson, and then we did Conan O'Brien. Wow! I, I believe we did Leno. I remember we did Letterman. We did Saturday Night Live again. Oh, we did Ellen. We played that song into the ground, <laughs> and it worked. Right. It really worked. And we played every radio station in the whole world, probably that song, and um, it really did work. And it was a really exciting time. I think for someone like me, it was also kind of a scary time because it was just so much so fast. It was a lot at once. And I think for me, it was probably a scary time because I just didn't want to be remembered for one song. I didn't want to have the song overshadow what I thought, what I hoped would be 
a nice catalog. Like some of my favorite bands have like catalogs of music, but you listen to certain particular entire albums, not just like, oh, I love that artist. They have that one song. You know, I just wanted to not yeah. be that band. No, it wants to be like typecast kind of thing. Yeah. And like, you know, something like a one hit wonder and that type of stuff is like mm-hmm. just, um, that's a big fear you can have. And, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, if you if you are lucky enough to ever just quote unquote, just be a one hit wonder, you're lucky enough. Like that's an insane feat. And, um, but yeah, I think that it was a really exciting time, but I think that it almost made me even want to write more music that helped complete that song or something like and i think that what's interesting is that we always played that song early in our set we still do believe yeah. it or not <laughs> um it's not like we save it for the end we just almost get it out of the way and play it and then um you know if you come to a show if anybody comes to a show they'll see that like the, the set is very rich it's very um it feels very good and it's not like oh man i hope they play that one song and i, I really feel happy and truly satisfied that like we did that and that 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 didn't happen that it was just the one song i want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the songwriting process you know this this podcast is it started off for designers and photographers and then it got musicians and then it got into cool all different things and i've always wanted to have somebody talk about the songwriting process and i know that you're a co-founder and and a co-writer and you guys have written some some hit songs and some really meaningful music that has had a huge impact on my life talk about that process how do you guys come up with these ideas and walk me through the process of of writing a song yeah so songwriting is sort of this weird like dark force like a mysterious hobby mysterious craft it's mysterious work it's sort of akin to um you know if you want to find let's say you want to go out and find some gold uh you'd probably be best to do that every day you know 10 hours a day when you're starting out and then eventually you'll find some gold just because of the sheer hours you're putting into it but it is weird this idea that this has always scared me as an artist it's always scared me as a songwriter somebody talked about this regarding paul mccartney they were like you know you give say you give paul mccartney a bass and you give john smith a bass (laughs) and you both give them ten thousand hours which is like this supposed rule, the supposed benchmark to become a master at anything, not just songwriting, but anything. They say 10,000 hours. Um, one person becomes Paul McCartney and John Smith does not become Paul McCartney. What did the other person do that the other one didn't do? I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that, but there's that's what's kind of crazy about this job is that um, some people are going to crack these codes. They're going to decipher these codes and some people aren't. And it doesn't make someone a better artist than anyone. It's a lot of luck and it's a lot of uh, hard work. And it's a lot of also like, you know, some bands might even be born at the wrong time period. Maybe if this album came out 30 years ago or if these albums came out 30 years from now, maybe they'd be more popular. Maybe I'd be still living with my parents at this point. Like you don't know what's going to hit. I feel like songwriting in its most simplified form is just kind of walking up to an instrument and trying stuff. It's rarely that you have a great night of sleep, you have breakfast, you have the perfect cup of coffee, and you just show up to the instrument and you start writing something that is going to change your life. And what's crazy, too, with our profession, with our craft, is that a song idea, a really great song idea, you can go from nothing and then in like the span of five seconds to 10 seconds, you could have an idea, a melody, an idea for a song, 
that can literally change the rest of your life forever. And that's crazy. And when you look at a piano, when you look at a guitar, something I really like about it is it's technically an even playing field. When you look at a piano, it's the same piano that Beethoven looked at. It's the same piano that Tom York from Radiohead or Tom Petty or, you know, Neil Young. It's like when you see a guitar, it's the same six strings. What Metallica did, what the White Stripes did, what Nirvana did, and what every band that's guitar heavy has done with the guitar and piano bands have done with piano. It's it's kind of crazy, but it's it's in that regard, it's an even playing field. It's just what people do with it. And I think I love that aspect about it a lot that you can go up to it and sort of put your own thumbprint on it, your own DNA. And um, yeah, like I said, like sometimes you're just like right now I'm on tour with my wife and two kids. And sometimes, you know, we'll be in our green room and the kids are kind of be playing and I'll go up to the piano and I'll record something that maybe is like literally 13 seconds. I'll save it as a voice memo. And then we'll get off tour maybe 18 months from now, two years from now, whatever it's going to be. And then you go back to this Dropbox folder and you listen to these ideas. And then those become eventually either Lumineers ideas or other projects that I'm working on. And it's that kind of, it is that almost, it is that boring. I I don't know. I can't, (laughs) I'm looking for a word or it, it is almost that simple. It's not like you drop acid and you're on this trip in the desert and you come up with this idea. Yeah. Maybe people have done that. I don't know. I've never done that. Um, yeah. And as cool as that story would be, I feel like it is very, there's just this fundamental aspect that like doing it with a clear mind and showing up every day um, is really important. And it's the only thing in my life I never really kind of got bored with like maybe when i was a teenager i got like really into golf for six months and then i would like hate golf and (laughs) you know maybe i really got into trying this thing out like skateboarding or something and i'd get you know sick of it and i've been doing this now really interested in music for probably going on 20 years and it's still like just as passionate just as strong which i'm really lucky that that it hasn't just like gone away and it wasn't just some whim and temporary thing but yeah songwriting is really interesting i really love the behind the scenes stuff and sometimes it's just, you know, writing down a simple five or six word phrase and letting that sit. And then I, I like at the end of the day, I really truly believe that we're not really writing these songs that we're capturing them from somewhere and that we're just trying to make sense of them. Like we have a song called where we are on our new album on bright side. that came out this year. And I really feel like when the ideas were coming to us, it's just like, you try your best to do the best iteration of that song. And yes, you are technically writing it. And yes, you're obviously, it's coming from your brain, but at some point it is kind of this almost like philosophical approach I take where I'm like, yeah, we are writing them, but I feel like we're just trying to make sense of them. We're almost like tuning into some radio station and trying to like get rid of the static and hear it and then be like, okay, well, that's the tempo. That's the key. These are the instruments as if it's been written before and like, this is the way it needs to happen. And the way it gets recorded is in my opinion, it's like probably as close to what it was supposed to happen as possible. And um, you know, it's pretty philosophical out there approach way looking at it. But um, I, I don't know. I think it's really cool. Like it's, it's really interesting. Like where do ideas come from? You know, again, that analogy of Paul's brain versus a thousand other people who would never turn into Paul McCartney, no matter how hard they tried, no matter how much acid they took, you know, <laughs> no matter how many lessons they took, how much money they had to spend on good bases, whatever. It's a, it's a really interesting profession. It's really strange. And it's, um, 
it's really strange that, you know, it's like, if you look at it from a business standpoint, if you sell carpets or if you sell donuts or something, it's like, well, that's your product. We have a weird business model where like, we actually don't have our product ever ready until we go back into the studio. And it's just assumed that we're going to make a new product <laughs> that's going to be good. And, uh, you know, I use that business model, but it's, I think we've been really lucky too, that we've never ever made music that we thought, well, this is what we think people are going to like, Yeah. not to say we have disregard for our fans, but there's a, there's a really cool producer. His name's Rick Rubin. <clears throat> he posted something I saw that said, um, if you want to please the audience, ignore them. I think that's what he said. And I thought, you know, some people might be like, well, screw that. That's, you know, that's really rude to the fans, but I actually disagree completely. And I think that it's really wise and profound. I think what he was getting at is like, if you think it's almost like if you met someone and tried to become friends with them, or if you tried to flirt with a girl or something, it's like, if you get so far in your head about what you think that person wants, instead of just being your natural self, being your natural self, being your honest self wins a hundred percent of the time. Every time in every instance, I feel. And I feel like um, with songwriting, yeah, again, I think if you like try to do all this market research to see what you're and see what the, you know, what's on the top 40 radio and what, what do people like? I just think it would be almost impossible to, to, to do that. So I think with us, it's been really fun just to make music that we really love. And um, we've seen our fan base grow and grow ever since we came out with that first album. Now we have four albums. And um, even like this, this solo piano record I made called Piano Piano, I really am proud of it. I really loved it. It was like, it's instrumental music. It's so different from the Lumineers. And it was really cool to see people respond to it. You know, I think people really responded to it. Like, wow, this is really different. But again, I made it from an honest standpoint. I wasn't like, I think this is what our fans want. It just was like, I think this is really cool and I'm into it. And if nobody else is like, that's fine. I think this is really cool though. And it's been cool to see the, the response to it. So I think that that wins at the end of the day, just it sounds cheesy, but yeah, literally like not being yourself, but yeah, being yourself and just trying to, to make stuff that you feel is honest and sincere to you. I think that's the best thing you can do. For sure. I've always wanted to know, I never really had the opportunity to ask, is it crazy when you're, you're playing at a show and there's thousands of people singing along and and then recognizing that all those fans have their own perception of what the song means. Like, I remember when I saw you guys, I had just gotten fired from like the sixth job in a row. I spent like my last 60 bucks or whatever, I got a ticket to go see you guys. And there's that line, it's like, how do you pay the rent? Is it your parents? And my parents had like just helped me pay the rent for like the third month in a row. Um, I bet but that made you feel like a piece of trash in that. <laughs> It really, it really did. I was like, it actually, it actually is my parents. Oh man, that was actually that was actually funny. Uh, Wes wrote that, and uh, I think I know who he's talking about. I'm not going to say who, but it was a friend that <laughs> I think it was general, and I think that's really uh, why it's a great lyric that could apply to a specific person, also a group of people. I think it just kind of pertained to people that, um, not like you, not a person that got fired and was trying, you know. Right. ferociously to get jobs and do it yourself. I think it was like more like maybe trust fund kids or people I felt, that... I felt attack. I was ready to leave. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's more like akin to people that like moved to Hoboken or moved to Manhattan right. and they don't really have a job and their parents are paying like, you know, $3,800 a month. 
Right. And it's like, oh, what are you doing in the city? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm looking for a job. And you're like, well, wait, what? So I think that's yeah. where that came from. But yeah, no, I think that. Is it weird to have people like reinterpret that? I get just, just not to cut no, you off I think there. that's, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, I remember, yeah. um, you know, my favorite band is probably Radiohead. And I remember uh, seeing a quote from an interview, Johnny Green with the guitarist talking about, he had said something to the effect of, he's like, I think that when people go to a concert, it's sort of a selfish, like, not selfish endeavor, but like a selfish um, experience in that when you're seeing a concert and you're really getting hit by the music and you're being, you know, it's like almost overwhelming. You're probably thinking like, I'm feeling this more than anyone in this room right now. This is like literally like for me, this is speaking to me on such a deep, profound level that nobody else is going to get it as much as I do. I was there by Um, myself too, which is like next level. That's bold. That's cool. I, lo- I mean, I-, I loved it. It was that's the best underrated, by the way. Like P- PSA, while the Lumineers guys here go see a concert by yourself. It's I've done that several times now. It's a a meaningful experience. It's actually really good. At first, it's weird, but it, but then you're completely present in it. It's I could say that I've gone a couple of movies by myself, and it, you take in the movie in a more almost profound yeah. way because there's the need to talk to somebody, um, right? Because we're humans. But yeah, yeah, I think that. Uh, <laughs> No, that's really cool, though. I think that people like taking it for what they need to get out of it, for what they want to get out of it. And that's happened to me, too. Like, I've misheard. Um, I literally was just talking to Stealth, our piano player, at breakfast the other day. And he was singing a lyric from this Wilco song. And it's a lyric I really love. And what I thought Jeff Tweedy was singing was, distance has a way of making love understandable. And it was like one of my favorite lyrics for like over a decade now. That's what I thought he was saying. And Stealth was like, that's not the lyric. The lyric is <laughs> distance has no way of making love understandable. And I was like, wait. And I was like, I don't care. I like I like what I heard more. Like, I'm not gonna like change what I thought. And like, I, I literally have been singing and thinking the wrong lyric for over a decade now. But I think that that's music. I mean, you hear what you hear, you take from it from what you want. And I think that, you know, the same thing happens with TV shows and movies. Some people hate them and some people think like, wow, it just changed my life. And I think with music too, like, you know, take a song and somebody might say, that's a really sad song. And other people might say, that's a really happy song. It makes me so happy. What are you talking about? I'm like, you know what? You're both right. Right. Who cares at the end of the day? If it does something for you, awesome. That's kind of the whole point of art is to move you, whether it makes you sad or angry or does this or that i think that that actually is the point of art is to do something to you if you listen to a song and look at a piece of art and you truly feel nothing then the artist didn't do their job or maybe you're just dead inside either way (laughs) one of the two either way the thing that's supposed to happen did not happen yeah well wesley talked about in an interview that i watched in preparation for the podcast he said about that uh, music is like a smell it brings back a, like a feeling or, or a memory and, and that I think is true and you know the last five years the details don't really matter and I don't want to be like self-serving here but it's been an emotional roller coaster COVID is just one of the many factors and yeah. there there have been these songs that have kind of become and my dad's a pastor so maybe there's some sort of like weird lineage here but those church songs never really resonated with me that sure. much but there are songs by you guys like there's certain songs from cleopatra and there are songs from like born and raised by john mayer and they kind of become like these 
hymns for my life, if you will. And I know that's, sure. that sounds kind of dramatic, but you know, that, no, that's that, great. That album, Cleopatra, like that was like, that was, I was in the fucking trenches of my life with those songs. And then for right. somebody else, they might just be these sort of passing things. But I wonder, had I not been in this place where I was receptive to, to these deep mean, lyrics and, and then also like in sobriety too, when you guys had Gloria came out, you know, that was right around the time that I was getting sober and dealing with my, dealing oh, that's with my cool. Own. I didn't know you were, uh, yeah. you are sober. That's great, man. Congrats. Yeah, I was, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I've kind of, how many years, what are you, what are you looking at? Two, two and a half years now. So it's, it's been good. I, I got sober. Uh, me, my life was kind of spir spiraling a little bit and then COVID was sort of like, uh, like I got to like May 20th or no, no, sorry, May 14th rather. And it was sort of like, all right, so this is either going to go, <laughs> this, my, I'm, oh, I'm either going to spiral further or get it. And, and, and I started on zoom and have, uh, have kind of stuck with it. But, um, yeah, I, in those really dark moments leading up to those the two years that I've been sober, Cleopatra is one of those albums where it actually, you know, to be honest, I never thought I'd have that chance to be talking to you, but um, you guys being so open about, you know, um, and I, I know obviously with your brother and with mm. talking about addiction and about, you know, um, alcoholism and stuff like that, it was, I don't think that it was the only thing, but it definitely was a contributing factor to get me to look at sort of how my life was fractured in some ways. And, and uh, your music has sort of been been there to kind of guide me throughout. And now those songs have a different, those hymns sort of have a different connotation. Mm. And the more I listen to them, the better it gets. So that's cool, man. That's awesome. Well, congrats on the sobriety. I'll be celebrating uh, seven years of sobriety, August 27. That's amazing. So, you never know. Yeah. You never yeah. know. How has that journey been for you? Is that, is that, I mean, I know that um, you guys talk about this a lot, but if, you know, and I don't want to, Put your anonymity out there or anything but you know what no no because i feel very overwhelmed right now I'm, I'm in year two and i and it's great but i'm sort of out past the honeymoon phase of it seeing the meaningful things happening in my life but also like oh man this is you know so what was that what was that journey like for you especially with all the temptation well, for of me, being on the road yeah <laughs> i think for me like I think thankfully the temptation went away because I think there was just a lot at stake. I think that mm -hmm. I'm a father now of two beautiful children. My oldest is four years old. So I had the luxury and the, you know, it was good to be sober for at least three years before um, the birth of my first born. And I think that, yeah, I just had a lot of stuff going on in my life where I was like, you know, this is not going to work with my relationship with my wife if this continues the way it was going. And like, yeah. eventually I want to be a father and I'm in this band and I want to stay lucid and clear and like connected to my friends and connected and present to what I'm doing day in and day out. So I would say the first year was tough after, you know, I stopped drinking. It was like temptations of like drinking Coca-Cola because I really love the sugar and the caffeine. But then also like eating a lot of dessert, like just having, I needed like something to like, um, do now. something to my brain, like after like a meal, like a, I think before it's like after a long day of drinking coffee, you might feel like a little bit burnt out or jittery and you have a dinner and then like you cap it off with like a glass of wine or a beer or a cocktail or something. And it sort of became this like conditioning of like, well, that now the day is capped. So without that, I think I was like, oh, I need like a brownie or ice cream or like a Snickers bar or something. Um, and then at some point it kind of tapered out to the point that, 
I, I don't know. Like, I think that a lot of people too around me told me like, you're going to become more creative. You're going to become even more connected to art. And I was like, that's bullshit. I really think that it's going to be the opposite. I think right. I'm really going to miss these things I used to do and it's going to be really tough. And then we made, um, then me and Wes wrote three together, the album three, which is called three. And then I made my piano album. And then we just made this last album, Bright Side, which I think is our best album we've ever made. And I feel like I've literally never been creative, more creative or more connected to music in my entire life. So it wasn't easy, but it's just been so much better. I can't really describe it. Like, I think that there's even things too, where it's like, you know, if I'm out at midnight, that's when it's like, okay, I'm starting to get tired. And you start to see people around you, they're getting maybe more drunk. And you're like, All right, you know, I'm just going to go home. Like, and I guarantee you, like, you're not going to miss anything that great the past let's say 1 a.m., 2 a.m., like nothing good is happening between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. it's very rare, I'd say that, at least from my perspective. And like now, yeah, I'm on tour with my band and, you know, I go to sleep late, but then I wake up early with the kids and that's like my life now. And I couldn't be happier. And I think that, I, I think I too, I was like, you know what? I tried doing what I was doing for like, 15 years or something, whatever it was, right? maybe even longer. And I was like, you know what? Why don't we just try 15 years without doing it? And let's see what happens to your brain. Yeah. And I obviously like the, the goal is like, well, after 15 years, I'm not going to start drinking again. The goal is that well, after 15 years, you're like, let's just keep going and do this forever. But I think that um, if you really look at your life, anybody going through that, if they really look like, well, why did I stop? The longer you're sober, the more likely you might forget why you stopped. Yes. Maybe 20 years from now, you might say, well, why did I stop? It probably wasn't that bad. And then maybe you start again. Maybe you'll be fine. I bet you 100 bucks it won't be fine. And then you'll realize again, oh, right, this is why I stopped because it's right. not manageable. It doesn't work. And uh, you, hear that all the, you hear that all the time. Like it, it, it's like if you go to like meetings or whatever, and I'm not necessarily like too, too, like too, too keen on like the God stuff, but I definitely like yeah. the, the camaraderie and, and the accountability with my friends and stuff like that. And, and just That's having great. sober friends, but you hear that over and over and over and over and over again. And it's so funny. Cause that really is the disease talking. Cause, cause it, in your back of your mind, you're like, nah, you could probably handle it. <laughs> so you gotta, you <laughs> yeah, gotta be so. careful with it. Yeah. I still experience the same highs as I used to. It's just I don't experience the same lows I used to, which is good. I mean, and I don't go as low as I used to go. And I don't, and I, if I do go low, it's not for as long or as deep as it used to be. And right. I think the irony with self-medication and drugs and alcohol is that we're self-medicating, trying to help ourselves, but we're just digging the hole even deeper, slowly but surely. And... Um, so yeah, I feel like the highs are still just as high, but they're like clean highs. They're like, right. I wrote this song or I completed this project or I saw my son walk for the first time and not like, well, you know, I took a pill and like walked down the street and felt like I was connected to the universe and like, right. some, <laughs> and like nothing actually happened. Like you're outside of a CVS <laughs> or a Walgreens and like nothing actually that cool is happening, but the drugs tell you something cool is happening. So things yeah. like that. <laughs> the thing for me is also to finding out things you actually like. Well, yeah. And I used to consider myself super extrovert. I think I, I think I'm both. I think I'm a pretty good mix of introvert extrovert, but I think that when I stopped drinking, I was like, well, I really actually cherish my like alone time and like downtime yeah. and like not like being around people drains me. 
But when I'm up for it, it's like the best experience. It's so right. fun. Well, and I still think it's good to like, it's good to still like give yourself a treat. Like for me, it sounds stupid. And I bet someone that might be listening to this that still is actively drinking or using drugs probably thinks I'm a weenie and they probably think I'm sad and pathetic. <laughs> but it's like, for me, like if I go to a party or get together like late at night and like I have like a Coke, like a glass of Coke with some ice, I'll be stoked. And that would like literally make me happy. And like, yeah, I don't know. Like it's so it's simple. It's a lot simpler these days for me, but it's still, I'll still be able to engage in conversations. And again, if I can tell, read the room that like, okay, everybody's getting like, they're pretty like, you know, wh wherever they're going. Right. And it starts to almost become like when you're sober around people that are, uh, let's just say drunk or high, it's almost like you're speaking in a different language or you're just not on that same wavelength. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, you're not going to miss out on like amazing adventures. And if yeah. you think you are, then I don't yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. That's not, it's time to pull a ripcord. Um, yeah. So in closing, thank you for your time. This has been really an amazing experience. Advice for people that are maybe feeling jaded, they're starting a band, they're on some sort of creative journey, and they look at someone like yourself and say, I'll never get to that place. What advice do you give to someone who's kind of disenfranchised and they, they feel like they're not going to make it? What do you say to someone like that? When I was starting out, and I saw people, bands that I looked up to, artists I look up to, I think it's important, especially when you're young, because I feel like when you're, let's say, 14, 15, let's just say a teenager, early 20s, um, you can get into this phase of like your your brain starts to expand and you start to see the world maybe for a little bit more of what it is. You start to realize the world is not this like fair, equal place. Maybe you go into college and maybe you get like, a little bit more of like a liberal, I don't know, worldview and stuff. And like you start, your brain starts to open up in a way that you can become maybe a little bit pessimistic and jaded as a young adult, late teenager, whatever. I think instead of saying, well, I'll never get to that place, start to tell yourself, I want to get to that place. How do I do that? And I think it's like, just like you said before, you know, one foot after the other and just try. I think that start with baby steps start with a plan. I think the greatest asset you can have is talking to somebody else that is successful that you have access to, which right. now that I say that I know is like sometimes impossible. Most of the time, I know that when you're up and coming, when you're like starting a band and you meet somebody that's gone on a tour or knows how to tour, you're like, wait, what, how do you drive <laughs> more than six hours from where you live with these instruments? Where do you sleep? How do you book the tour? Do you even get paid? You have to pay for your own gas. Where do you eat? How much does the hotel cost? Right. It's a lot. And how do you write? How do you get a record deal? Blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot to answer and it is super overwhelming at first. I think though, for me, like, I just think, try to follow what you're into. If you want to get into the artist side of things and write music, don't worry about the recording when you're young. Don't worry about getting the best new microphone. If your music is bad and you have a $10,000 microphone, you're going to be recording a bad song with an amazing <laughs> microphone. If you record an amazing song idea with a $50 microphone, it will be still a great song idea and people will still want to listen to it. Trust me. They might tell you, hey, this song is great. You do need to re-record it. And then once you have 
positive affirmation or positive confirmation that in fact you are now writing good songs, yeah, then it's probably time to go into a studio and spend 10, 20, $30,000, whatever it might be on a real record and start to go out there and do it for real. But I think when you're starting out as a songwriter, you know, your, your podcast is about creatives. I think when you're talking about the art, the songwriting, write, write, write. And, you know, when you write a, a course, try and experiment, make the course your verse, and then try to write another course that can yeah. even beat the original course. Um, try to write songs that when you show them to your friends and family, you don't need the, you don't feel the urge or the need to explain the song of why it's cool. You just hit play. And when you listen with them, you know, it's cool. And that's right. going to take 10,000 hours. That's going to take a lot of bad song ideas. Don't get discouraged. Just know that that's part of the journey. Know that you're going to suck when you start. Um, Billie Eilish is like an anomaly, like, you know, to change, to do that when she was like 16, 17 is crazy. Don't right. compare yourself to Billie Eilish or the Beatles <laughs> ever, because that's just not going to happen. And yeah. That's okay. That's not normal. Um, what they've done is like extraordinary, truly. So yeah, um, yeah just write, write, write. Know that you're going to suck when you start probably, but uh, yeah. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And just talking about, and I hear this time and time again of all the people I've asked, it's like that, that question of just like, you know, what's your best advice and patience. Patience is always the answer. Mm, By the way, one of my yeah. favorite songs ever and like, and talk about hymns of my life, patience. I love that song. And that's the, oh, end, thanks, man. that's the ending to that album. And that's the ending to, to, to this uh, podcast. I know you guys are Great. on tour. You have been so great uh, today. This has been so cool. Listening to you guys is going to be like next next level. Um, where can people find you guys online? Uh, tell me about the tour. I know you're in Oklahoma tonight. Uh, this is shameless self-promotion time. And maybe you could sell like three tickets because there's like 11 people listening to this. But, you know, <laughs> plug away. I think, uh, yeah, if you go to Lumineers.com, you can see our tour dates. Uh, we still are on a big tour in the United States. Uh, we are going to be going all over the world at some point. And our album Bright Side just came out this January. It's on wherever music is streamed. Uh, you can purchase it at iTunes, all those good places, vinyls and that type of stuff. And yeah, I have an album called Piano Piano. It came out last January. It's wherever albums are streamed. You can also buy it directly from our, our record label, Dual Tone, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. But it's a solo instrumental album. Um, predominantly piano there's some cool strings and electronic stuff in there too but it's something i wrote by myself i love it played with played with some amazing musicians and if you like songs like patience or april which are two lumineers instrumental songs i wrote uh it's sort of like an extension the, the director's cut if you will of those types of songs for your listening that. pleasure so yeah that, that's amazing and i and i would be remiss uh i just have to say one more thing that my uh my grandma-in-law grammy mary rose she's a huge fan of you guys and uh, i would just like we need to give a shout out to grammy because she has been incessant upon not giving up on the dream of having you guys in the podcast so grammy this one's for you i didn't get grammy Wesley, but i got close grammy <laughs> nice work and uh thanks for <laughs> inspiring your grandson to keep going yes she do she, that's she's gonna literally take that clip and share it with all her girlfriends that next time she goes to kinchley's or some ramsey mm -hmm. establishment so thanks brother i know you've been uh, we're over time here but i really appreciate it thanks so much rob it's all good next time you're ramsey give, give me a ring we'll hang out all right you got it right, thanks, all right, thanks guys. guys appreciate it bye bye everybody